having had this uh, broad panorama of the law, the sources of the law of the sea in the present post-codification era, we can perhaps look a little bit ahead, look at the challenges that are open to states in the present and in the immediate future. I wouldn't dare to go in the faraway future. Nobody has a crystal ball. Uh, first of all, there are certain tasks set forth in the law of the Sea Convention that states are engaged in performing, but which are not yet complete. The first task is to, the first challenge is that of completing certain tasks. And what the, the most urgent task to be set out in the Convention, but to be completed, is to bring to fruition, to complete the so-called zonal approach. We have seen that the approach of the Convention is based on maritime zones, the territorial sea, the economic zone, the continental shelf, and so on and so forth. Uh, to, as we also have seen, to define a zone, you don't need only to know which regime applies to it, which rights and duties different categories of state has within it, but you have also to know where do these zones begin and end, what are the limits. And, of course, the maximum external limits are set out in the Convention. We know that the territorial sea may be not, not be more than 12 miles wide, the economic zone 200 miles, and so on. But there are still tasks between neighboring states. You have to draw a delimitation line. Um, I think about 200 agreements have already been concluded between states tracing delimitation lines. But there are many other borders at sea that have not yet been agreed by parties. A few have been decided by international courts and tribunals. Uh, some of those that exist are not complete. These, for instance, the early agreements on delimitation were the limitations of the continental shelf. The question arises, would these agreements apply also to the water column above the continental shelf? Can the borders established by agreement go to the surface? The answer is probably no. These agreements were concluded having in mind uh, interests connected with the seabed, probably oil interests, gas interests, uh, which may not be the same as the interest having to do with the water column, fishery interest, environmental interest, and in particular, if you have to draw a line that concerns both the seabed and the water column, you'll have to take into consideration mostly geographical factors and not uh, resource factors. This was already clarified by the International Court of Justice in the uh, Gulf of Maine uh, case of 1984. 
So there, is, there are a lot of agreements to be concluded uh, for the delimitation of maritime areas or there are a lot of cases to be brought to international courts of tribunal to obtain the same result in case states don't reach an agreement, which may happen. And here the jurisprudence developed by international courts and tribunals about delimitation, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, becomes an important element of the task ahead. But there is another delimitation in a certain way uh, task that is to be put for uh, to, to be developed. It just started and has still a long way to go. This is the question of the delineation of the outer limit of continental shelves which a coastal, certain coastal state would like to establish beyond the 200 nautical miles limit. Here, uh, as I mentioned when we were talking about the continental shelf, states have to gather, very difficult to gather, scientific data about uh, thickness, of sediments, about distances, about canyons, about lots of things, with the help of the United Nations, the, the, the Commission on the Limit of the Shelf, then they have to make a kind of proposal or submission for a certain outer limit of their shelf, and the Commission has to go through a complex proceeding of assessing this data and either approving them or disapproving them. If they are not approved or not completely approved, a dialogue arises between the Commission and the uh, coastal state in order that the coastal state is put in a position at the end of the process to delineate the outer limit of its continental shelf in conformity in harmony with what the Commission has uh, proposed. This process has started already some years ago. Some outer limits of the continental shelf proposed by a few states have been approved, but many, many files are waiting for being examined by the Commission and it can take a long time. The process seems to be, apart from its uh, slow pace, um, seems to be rather satisfactory for the states involved. However, uh, external observers may, may consider that this is a process that is not as transparent as one would wish. The data submitted to the Convention, perhaps because they are sensitive, because they may have resource implications, are confidential, apart from the fact that they are in such quantities that it would be very difficult to study and to publish them, but still are confidential. And other states and the international community and the public have access mostly to the summaries of submissions 
and at the end summaries of what the, the Commission decides. So uh, it may be considered odd that certain decisions, certain limits adopted by states in conformity with suggestions or to reports of the Commission are binding, final and binding for all states when the process has not been uh, followed in all its details. Uh, states uh, on the basis of the submissions, the summaries of the submission, have sometimes made objections and observations. But how these observations are discussed and considered remains a little bit obscure. So uh, there are reasons for the confidentiality of the process, but still in view of the very important and legally important result, namely limits final and binding for everybody, uh, perhaps some reconsideration of the process could be uh, considered. These are the main tasks uh, ahead that are already in the process of being performed, but which are the, of the first degree of urgency for the international uh, community in this post-codification era. We may perhaps add, uh, speaking about the continental shelf, that the Law of the Sea Tribunal tribunal's decision on the delimitation of maritime areas between Bangladesh and Myanmar adopted on the 14th of February 2012 probably has made an important contribution in clarifying the relationship between the continental shelf limits commission and the process of uh, delimitation of the continental shelf um, between neighboring states. Uh, first of all, the, this decision, this judgment has decided that the lateral boundary on the shelf beyond 200 miles can be decided by an arbitration, oh, sorry, an arbitration or a court, in this case a court, the Law of the Sea Tribunal, um, even though the external limit has not yet been established by the interested states uh, on the basis of a report of the Commission. In the case there was a discussion, one side said, you cannot trace, you judge cannot trace, uh, cannot draw a borderline beyond 200 miles until the Commission has made its uh, findings because the Commission, in order to make a finding about the external limit of the 200, of the continental shelf beyond 200 miles, has to decide whether there is title to the shelf, that might not be title, and 
this is needed also for a lateral boundary. On the other hand, the Commission itself has always said and put it in its regulations that it will not delimit, uh, delineate the external limit of the continental shelf if there is a pending problem of delimitation and one or both states involved do not agree that the Commission uh, proceeds. So there would be a kind of circular situation in which the lateral boundary cannot be adopted because the Commission has not yet acted and the Commission cannot act because the lateral boundary has not been established. The Law of the Sea Tribunal, even though with prudence, limiting this finding to the specific case and its physical characteristic, has decided that it can, when it's safe enough to say that there is a continental shelf beyond 200 miles, and so that there is title of one or two or both of the parties, the lateral border of continental shelves between continental shelves beyond 200 miles can be established by the judge. And this has been the first time this has happened. Other courts and tribunals have played with this problem and found ways not to decide to draw uh, a line going beyond 200 miles. So this is the latest development concerning this haunting, daunting task of delimiting continental shelves beyond 200 miles. Some have talked of the last frontier. There are also other last frontiers in the law of the sea, but this is certainly one of those. Now we can perhaps pass, have a review of new problems, looking a little more in the present and in the near future. Uh, as I said, the law of the sea convention is broad enough in its terminology and in its rules to be able to be interpreted in such a way that issues that were not yet uh, present in the, in the mind of states when the com convention was concluded can be encompassed in the existing rules. But for other such situations, it is not the case. Uh, if you look at what is on the table now, perhaps the practice of the Law of the Sea Tribunal has put to the fore the question of so-called bunkering at sea. This concerns uh, vessels, usually small tankers, that roam the seas and function as gas pumps floating gas bombs. They get an appointment in a certain position in the middle of the ocean with the fishing vessel and other kinds of vessels and they pump gas and so that the fishing vessel can continue its work without going to port. Uh, if there is a dispute concerning uh, this activity, the question arises what is the nature of bunkering, for instance, in particular in the economic zone of a state. You could say, and it has been said by some, this is part of the freedom of navigation, so the coastal state has nothing to say. 
Others could say this is an economic activity, so it should be encompassed in the regulatory powers of the coastal state. Still others have said, well, it depends on uh, what is the activity performed of the vessel that receives the bunker. If you give gas to a fishing vessel, you are performing an ancillary function to fishing, so you fall under the coastal state um, sovereign rights on, on living resources of the economic zone. If you are doing so for a passenger or a cargo ship, this is freedom of navigation. This, this problem has been put on the table in the first case before the Law of the Sea Tribunal, the Saiga case, the, the, the tribunal canvassed these possible questions and answers, but choose, uh, decided it was not necessary to solve the question to, in order to take its decision. But still, practice has shown that this activity, which is often practiced, but which draftmen of the convention didn't think about, is in fact uh, something you have to look, and you can probably look and solve the problem on the basis of the convention. The other aspects that are now fashionable among many others are the consequences of climate change. Climate change is changing the acidity of the waters, and in particular, I would focus for a second on this aspect, is provoking a considerable melting of the ice on the Arctic, the North Pole ice. Areas of this frozen ocean are not frozen anymore, at least for many months a year for the time being. And the trend evidenced by comparative observations of the few, last few decades show that this trend will probably continue. So the ice cap on the North Pole will be smaller and smaller and new areas liquid seas will appear. This, of course, may be seen as beneficial because new shipping routes making the travel, say, from Europe to Japan 30 or 40 percent shorter than it now is, will appear. Or even the uh, travel, say, from uh, Europe or from New York to San Francisco, you could do it without going through the Panama Canal. But, and resources, oil and gas and other kinds of resources that were inaccessible because on the continental shelf, protected by a coat of ice, now are not easy to accede, but conceivably accessible in the near future. So there is an enormous movement, enormous discussion on the regime of the sea that being frozen was not treated as a real sea. Now it is a liquid sea. There will be also probably some, let's say, more worrisome uh, consequences. Uh, the habits of fish will change. Species that didn't um, dwell on the Arctic will move into the Arctic. 
new regulations will have to be developed and in the meantime uh, illegal fishing might explode. And then all this human activity would entail enormous risks for a very pristine environment. So this is a whole set of new issues in which there is nothing new in terms of principle. It is a sea, you apply the convention on the law of the sea. The coastal state of the Arctic have even said so in their Iliusat uh, declaration of a few years ago. But the fact that this, uh, is that you have to apply these rules to a new area, an area that f up to a few years ago was not really open to intensive uh, human activity and now is uh, the center of fierce competition. In particular, the question of determining the outer limits of the continental shelves in the Arctic is open and on the very uh, intensive discussion. Moreover, there are only five states that have coasts on the Arctic Ocean, but there are much, many more than five states that are keenly interested in doing things in the Arctic area, in exploiting resources in navigation, and there is already a tension between the first row of coastal states and those who are uh, in second and third and fourth row. So this is a new area of the law of the sea to be explored on the basis of the convention, but with a lot of agreements to be concluded. The other important subjects that is now, let's say, on the agenda, on the horizon, and which is, has been discussed now for already about a decade, concerns the genetic resources or the living resources of the seabed beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. When states during the Law of the Sea conference discussed about the international seabed area, the seabed, as we said, beyond the limits of the continental shelf, they had in mind mineral resources. Resources, they thought of the famous polymetallic nodules, they thought later about sulfide, ferromanganese, crust. They didn't think about living resources because they didn't know there could be living resources at depth of four or five thousand meters. They knew that on the continental shelf, which is closer to the coast, there are certain living resources, especially the so-called sedentary species, and they had decided that the sedentary species of the continental shelf would be uh, regulated through the rules on the continental shelf and not to the rules on the high seas at the time where nobody thought about the economic zone. But beyond 200 miles or even 350 miles, nobody thought there would be anything living on the seabed. There was, of course, uh, fish, but in the water column. Well, more or less, when the Law of the Sea Convention was adopted some years before, but not many, and certainly the delegates were not aware of this, scientists started to 
make important observations. There are, on, in certain parts of the seabed, where I would say telluric activity is more intense, certain phenomena called hydrothermal vents, which you could describe as an underwater geyser. So water and vapor coming from inside the Earth's crust, high temperature, and on the high pressure projected into the water. These vents um, contain a lot of minerals that come from inside, different from those of the surrounding environment, and then accumulate around the vent as a little uh, mounds, few meters, maybe 10, 20, 40, 50 meters high. And the environment where these vents happen, these vents, we can say, are not forever. They last years, maybe 50 years, but then they stop and perhaps another one arises 100 kilometers away. Well, around the, these, um, I'm not a scientist, so I'm talking in an, the approximate way of the layman, but certainly all this warm or hot vapor and water coming into a very cold and dark environment creates important contrast. Well, um, scientists have discovered that in the areas around this hydrothermal vents, there exist forms of life very interesting, very strange, different from those we are accustomed to. These are forms of life, would be difficult to classify them as vegetables or animals. Uh, but they are certainly forms of life that function in a way different to what we are accustomed. They function without using light. So all the chlorophyllian mechanism based on light don't function 4,000 meters down. There is some form of chemical mechanism for the function of this living creature uh, or organism, which uh, is very interesting to study. Uh, movies and documents are available. Probably any one of you can find some photographs on the internet. These organisms range from things you see only with a microscope to worm-like creature 10 or 12 meters tall. What is important about these, uh, these forms of life is to understand how they function, to understand these chemical mechanisms through which they survive and reproduce and so on. And this, according to well, those who are interested and know more than I do, may have a lot of applications in, especially in the pharmaceutical industry. So there is a keen interest in studying these organisms, which means taking samples 
taking some of these organisms from the seabed and going to a laboratory and doing all the studies that are necessary. Certain chemical products have already been uh, developed uh, in this way. Well, coming to the law of the sea, what is the regime of these genetic resources? First of all, we have to say one thing. These genetic resources and the events around which they uh, usually develop may be on the seabed beyond the limits of national jurisdiction, but may also be on the seabed inside the limits of natural jurisdiction. For instance, I, uh, I am informed that there are the such phenomenon occurs in the seabed not too far from the Ashores Islands, which belong to Portugal. These are on the continental shelf of Portugal, and Portuguese scientists, uh, perhaps with the cooperation of others, are working on these uh, phenomena, and nobody uh, discusses that this is an activity that falls under the sovereign rights of the coastal state. These are resources of the continental shelf. You could compare them to sedentary species. But what about resources of this kind beyond the limit of, uh, of national jurisdiction? Here uh, it is, well, everything is on the discussion. But probably you can at least say so, that this question was unknown and unforeseen by those who drafted the Law of the Sea Convention. States who adopted the Convention in 1982 hadn't the palest idea of the existence of these possible resources and of their exploitation. So if we are to try to apply the Law of the Sea Convention, it would be quite difficult because there are no specific provisions. A big discussion is going on in various um, international fora. Now most of the discussion concentrates in the United Nations. The United Nations has discussed in, the, in various fora, especially in an ad hoc working group that has already met I think three or four times and which will be meeting more intensively starting in 2012 to try to study the aspects and in the latest development it is not excluded that a treaty might be elaborated. Of course many states were a bit skeptical but the pressure is there and probably the next big discussion, diplomatic discussion on the law of the sea will be the discussion already started on the regime of genetic resources beyond nation, the limits of national jurisdiction. Uh, of course, there, the, the main positions are on one side, uh, it is the view is held that one should apply or apply by analogy or being inspired by the principle of the common heritage of mankind. These should be 
resources uh, that being outside the limits of national jurisdiction should be developed for the benefit of all through a mechanism that could be similar to that of the nodules. Uh, of course, the International Seabed Authority sometimes feel that it should be the very International Seabed Authority that does it. Others say that the International Seabed Authority is structured uh, even in its uh, deciding uh, bodies around uh, mineral resources is not the best. Others say that the 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 principle of the common heritage wouldn't apply here, that we are in the area of the freedom of the high seas and whoever uh, can exploit these resources uh, should be welcome to do so. And others say, and of course this is a big ideological divide, one on which neither side will ever concede that the other is right. So at the end of the day, but the end of the day may be quite a few years away from now, some more pragmatic uh, solution will have to be found. And uh, perhaps looking as an inspiration to the Straddling Stocks uh, Convention or other existing models. But this is a subject which is still is the big discussion field for the future. We may perhaps just remark that the difficulty of the problem is, the, is linked to the way these living resources are exploited. If you take resources as we know them, let's say oil, what do you do with oil? You extract it and you burn it, or fish, what do you do with fish? You take it out from the sea and you eat it. In this case, you don't burn these um, resources, these living resources, and you don't eat them either. You take just a sam sample and then you study how, how it works and then you try to reproduce it, to duplicate it. And you may be tempted to go and get a patent for it. And so a whole problem of patent law, intellectual property, emerges. is not the most important part, but it's part of the problem. But the real intellectual challenge is to imagine a regime for the exploitation of resources that in fact you do not consume, which you study and imitate. And I'm not sure that states have completely interiorized this problem. One has the impression that sometimes the discussions are a copy of the discussion of 30 or 40 years ago around the nodules. But the nodules were a very different kind of resource, a resource which you would use for human consumption or human uh, engineering or whatever. Well, these are perhaps the most interesting new uh, subjects on the discussion. There is also an old subject that has come on the new light in the last uh, seven or eight uh, years or so. This is the question of piracy. Piracy is a subject almost as old as the law of the sea, 
pirates have been active on the seas for centuries. These are people uh, that threw their vessels, which were not attached to a particular state by flag, usually, even though sometimes they fly a flag, uh, attacked other vessels at sea, in the high seas, for purpose of uh, unlawful gain. And from the old times, pirates were considered as enemies of mankind, and states agreed that no state would protect the pirate vessel, so the repression of piracy was open to all states without having to ask permission for a flag state. So states could stop, uh, intervene on the high seas on pirate vessels and proceed also for in um, their domestic courts. And this is the traditional law of piracy, which was codified in the Geneva Convention on the High Seas and repeated practically word by word in the Law of the Sea Convention of 1982. Well, in the last few years, would say in the last decade or so, piracy isn't anymore something uh, you read about in children's books. It's not anymore treasure island time. Is more, there is in the last decade, and in particular in the last decade, a revival of piracy in certain areas of the world. It was first in the Malacca Straits and around uh, Southeast Asia, the question of the boat people, people uh, trying to go away from certain countries in Southeast Asia, which were and going on little ships uh, with all their belongings, with, with very poor belongings, which were without any pity attacked by pirates and sometimes always robbed and sometimes even uh, killed. This was phenomenon has subsided because of a lot of cooperation between the states concerned. But then piracy has moved in the seas of Somalia, where there, is, there are two phenomena. There is a huge international maritime traffic, a good part, an important part of uh, maritime traffic of the world comes out of the Suez Canal and goes towards the Orient and passes not far from the Horn of Africa in the seas near Somalia. So there is a lot of ships that may be subject to piracy. On top of that, there is a coastal state, namely Somalia, in which for now quite a long time there hasn't been a government in place that can enforce the law at sea. So it has happened that pirate activities have developed starting from the coast, coastal uh, cities or villages in Somalia, attacking vessels going through the seas even uh, adjacent to Somali coasts 
sometimes even the territorial sea. Uh, this situation has proliferated, has become a big concern for the international community, and even the UN Security Council has been following it keenly. It has adopted, I think, about a dozen or so resolution on the resolutions on the subject. And perhaps the key aspect of these resolutions is that these resolutions authorize states to behave against pirates in the territorial sea of Somalia in the same way as they can behave on the high seas. So they can stop the vessels, they can attack the pirates, and so on. Many states have sent military vessels in the area. There are American vessels, there are Chinese vessels, there are Iranian vessels, there are European vessels. Indeed, the European Union has established a collective endeavor called Operation Atlanta. But this being not anymore an isolated phenomenon, uh, certain issues arise which nobody thought about in the old law of the sea of piracy. When a pirate is captured, a pirate vessel tries to attack a passing vessel, but a helicopter of the Navy comes and stops the attack and some pirates are captured. Well, the problem for the capturing state is what to do with the pirates. And one can say that uh, states to which the main mer merchant fleet belong, those who are the possible victims of piracy, are very keen in stopping the pirates, in preventing attacks, but are much less keen on prosecuting the pirates they are to capture. Why? They are, uh, they, to set up a legal proceedings against pirates in the land whose flag the capturing vessel flies may be a complicated and expensive exercise. You have to organize legal proceedings, say, in Northern Europe for things that happened uh, in, uh, before, along the coast of Africa. You have to put together evidence that can stand the test of, uh, let's say, a Danish judge or an Italian judge or a Spanish judge. You can bring witnesses. This may be difficult. For instance, the typical witness is the captain of the victim vessel, but he may be somewhere around the world doing his job. So things are complicated. On top of that, the pirate is very often not the mastermind, is a, a young person who for a very few dollars does this ugly task. And it he might be happy to spend some years in a prison in Northern Europe and then ask for asylum and maybe claim human rights and so on. So states are very, very embarrassed in what to do with pirates. 
some cases of have happened of captured pirates that are just put on a beach and left there. And this is still the, let's, the more acceptable solution. Others have been put on a skiff and left in the middle of the sea and nobody knows what has happened to them. And so technical solutions have to be found. For a while agreements with friendly neighboring states like Kenya were developed which in exchange for a lot of money and assistance these states would accept to take the captured pirates and uh, in, in their prisons and then submit them to trial uh, in, in guaranteeing observance of human rights. But the, now there are perhaps too many and these states are starting to feel the, the weight of this difficult situation. The idea of establishing some kind of internationalized tribunal has been proposed by the UN Secretary General, but there is a lot of resistance in the various parties active in Somalia. So the question of piracy is based on the Law of the Sea Convention, but the Law of the Sea Convention examines, considers uh, an old phenomenon. The new phenomenon is more complicated, not only because it can take place not only in the high seas, but also on the, in the continental shelf, but also because of its dimension that makes complicated uh, the prosecution or the disposal of in, in some ways of the pirates and shows the intermingling between the law of the sea and uh, the law of the protection of human rights. And perhaps this is uh, an observation that brings us to deal with the different uh, set of problems that are characteristic of the law of the sea in the present post-codification era.